afternoon from the KLX studios in Berkeley, California. I'm Franklin, and you're listening to the Berkeley Rock Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, antibiotic resistance and gold chemistry. In addition, we'll be joined by Dr. Mark Hauser, who will talk about moral minds. Also, we'll find out what laminar flow is. So stay tuned for all this, plus the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week, coming right up here on the Berkeley Grok Science Show. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee, the voice of sugary goodness. Mm, I was thinking of double chocolate cinnamon latte next time. All right. So, Charles, I need to find jewelry. You know, I'm constantly perplexed by the fine jewelry market. It's shiny stones that people buy, but nevertheless, they're pretty. So do you think gold's pretty? It's shiny. Yeah. (laughs) Probably useful in some commercial applications as well. Chemists here at UC Berkeley have probably opened a new field of gold catalysis to be used for catalyzing reactions that would not otherwise be possible would be extremely toxic. And it turns out gold has some very interesting properties which allow it to be both an electron-donating, electron-accepting atom. This is also the reason why it has this distinct gold coloring is because of the relative energy levels of the outer P shells and the S shells. I think it would be mostly the D shells that would be the ones that are... Right, but I mean D shells as well, but the yeah. relative spacing, yeah, the spacing of them of those, yeah, okay. is actually quite interesting. And it turns out that Einstein's theory of relativity plays into effect. Oh, really? Yes, yeah, so this is work that was carried out by Dean Tost, a professor here in chemistry. And what he describes is that because the nuclei of gold is so dense, that means it has so many protons, the electrons have to zip around faster so that they don't fall into the nucleus. And this is especially true for the S-shell electrons, which are, of course, closer to the nuclei. And since they're going so fast, they have a relativistic effect. They're actually heavier, and in fact, they get pulled closer to the shell, uh, reducing their overall energy level. As a result, their outer shells, P and D shells, are somewhat shielded, and so they are not as strongly bound oh, to the nuclei. Okay. And so this makes the S-shell particularly easier to accept electrons from other molecules, Where's and then the... for the DNP shells to be able to participate in electron donating to right. other compounds. Right. But shouldn't this be the case for all of the uh, group that uh, gold is in? Right. In fact, many metals, but okay. gold in particular has these interesting properties just because of the nature of their... The relative spacings. Yeah. Oh, well, it's fascinating. I always knew gold was special in some fashion. <laughs> <laughs> and this was reported in one of our uh, favorite journals, Nature. All right, and finally, is resistance futile? It heats up the circuit. <laughs> Uh, that is true. The loss over that resistance element. Yeah, and it gets worse and worse, in fact. <laughs> so it is futile. It's also futile for bacteria, it would seem. Really? So uh, obviously a big problem with combat and treat bacterial infections is that you can rapidly mutate and gain resistance to whatever antibiotic drugs you're giving. Right, them. running out, right? So how do you stop that and what can be done about it? And this is uh, interesting work that was done by Floyd Romsberg. He was a chemist at the Scripps Research Institute. And what they did is they targeted a particular gene called Lex-A. 
And this is a on switch for what's known as a DNA polymerase. So normally the bacteria are able to copy their DNA very accurately and right. correctly, but uh -huh. if they're under stress, they turn on an error-prone DNA polymerase mm. so they can start making mutation. Uh -huh. What happens is if you target this Lexa, basically the bacteria isn't able to switch on the error-prone DNA polymerase, preventing it from making mutations very readily and preventing it from evolving resistance. So what these researchers did is they screened a bunch of compounds, more than 100,000, looking for inhibitors of Lexa. They found quite a few, and they say, if you give this drug with other antibiotics, they'll be much more potent and powerful and prevent the mutations. mutations. Yeah. Again, not ready for clinical trials just yet, they say, but this fellow Romsberg has started a new company called Acogen right here in South San Francisco to take a look at this therapy. Very cool. Presented at a recent meeting of the American Chemical Society. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Berkeley Grox Science Show you're listening to. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, Professor Mark Hauser will join us to discuss the moral minds. So stay tuned. Science Show. Well, our moral sense of right and wrong often seems so ingrained in our personality that few think of where it arises. Most might presume it is derived from our learned experiences, but the alternative is that much of our moral sense is simply a biological part of our human nature. Well, join us today on Berkeley Grox to discuss this issue is Professor Mark Hauser. Among his many appointments, he is Harvard College Professor, Professor of Psychology, Organismic and Evolutionary Biology, and Biological Anthropology. He is also the Director of the Cognitive Evolution Lab at Harvard University, recipient of numerous honors and author of several research articles and popular books. His most recent release, Moral Minds, How Nature Designed Our Universal Sense of Right and Wrong, explores the evolution of morality in humans. Professor Hauser, thank you very much for joining us today on the Brook Grok Science Show. Thank you for having me. Can you tell us about your thoughts of how we derive our uh, moralistic behaviors? Sure. So the premise of the book is to think about our moral judgments in some of the same ways that people have thought about our linguistic judgments, and in particular, how we decide whether something is grammatical or not. And so the, the analogy is basically this, that when we are confronted with a moral problem, we often give a very quick answer to whether something is morally permissible or forbidden, and we often do so in a way which seems to be unconscious and that we're not aware of kind of why we lighted upon one decision or another. This, you know, is in some sense quite different from a very common view that certainly appears within law or religion, which is that when we decide what's right or wrong, we do so by appealing to very explicit principles about why something is right or wrong. And so the idea is that by thinking about the nature of our moral judgments as an intuition, and that's driven by you know, what I refer to in Moral Minds as a universal moral grammar, we begin to open the door to very new and exciting questions that the science can begin to unravel about the nature of the mind, the nature of how we evolve these kinds of systems, how we develop them, and so forth. 
I see. Is there anything as to uh, what would constitute such a moral grammar? Yeah, so I mean, the kinds of evidence that we and other people in this area have begun to accumulate go in a couple of different directions that I think appeal to the idea of an intuition. <clears throat> the first is that we've developed a website called the Moral Sense Test, which you know, listeners can log into. When you log in, you give information about you know who you are, your age, your religious background, if you have one, your education, and so forth. And then you proceed to take a series of different moral dilemmas. Now, these dilemmas put you in situations where you're either judging what you would do in a particular case, or you're judging the moral permissibility of somebody else's actions. And what we find now, we've got you know, close to about 300,000 subjects from around the world, is that people tend to give very, very robust, consistent judgments, where the evidence suggests so far is that there's very little, in some sense, cross-cultural variation. People of different ages, of religious backgrounds or no religious background, different education, seem to judge in very similar ways, giving some suggestion of a universal set of judgments or intuitions. And then secondly, and perhaps most interestingly, is that when we ask people to justify why one particular situation is morally permissible, but another one is not, people often don't know at all. In other words, they've got an intuition, but when you say, well, why, they go, I don't know, or they give very in incompatible results. So these are the kinds of things, together with studies of early child development, as well as damage to certain parts of the brain, which knock out certain aspects of morality, these pieces of evidence together begin to build a story about the biology underlying our moral sense. So uh, it's interesting you allude to uh, that there might be particular parts of the brain that might be involved in moral behaviors. Is there any indication of what par those parts of the brain might be? Yes, at the level of the brain, we're really just beginning to get a hand on this. But I mean, for example, let me give you a couple of nice examples. So for example, there's um, some work by a colleague of mine named Josh Green, who's done neuroimaging studies of normal subjects while they read different kinds of moral dilemmas. And let me just give you an example to put something concrete on the table. So there are some very classic problems in moral philosophy, uh, typically called the trolley problems, because the trolleys uh, are involved in the story. And in one example of the trolley problem, a trolley is running loose down a tr train track and out of control. If it continues, it will run over and kill five people. But there's somebody staying next to the tracks near a switch. If that person flips the switch, the trolley will turn onto a sidetrack where it will kill one, but the five will be saved. Now, when you ask people on the Internet, let's say, is this a morally permissible action, that is, flipping the switch, killing one but saving five, most people, about 90%, say that it is. But now make one small change. The trolley is continuing on its track. It will kill five people. You're staying next to a man that if you push in front of the track, this man is big enough that he will stop the trolley, killing him but saving the five. Is that morally permissible? Now, again, on the Internet, only about 10% of people say that's permissible. What Josh Green has been able to uncover is that in cases where there seems to be a fairly easy utilitarian consequentialist kind of decision where you can go for the more over the few, so saving five versus one, then you get this area of the brain which is in the frontal lobe. In contrast, emotional processing like the amygdala. So what Green has been able to uncover, and other people have now given support to this, is that you've got contributions of kind of emotional processing, contributions of kind of a cool calculus that decides the consequences. And then in cases where those areas disagree, you have an area that kind of arbitrates in terms of the conflicts. So that's kind of the evidence that we can get from studies of neuroimaging. But then we can also begin to look at people who have certain kinds of neurological disorders. And the case I like the most, in part because I think it's gripping for the listeners, is to think about psychopaths. 
Now, psychopaths are interesting in part because everybody agrees they do things that are morally inappropriate. They go and kill people. But what the theory that we've been pushing challenges is the reason why they go and kill people. The common view has been that a psychopath will go and kill somebody because due to emotional damage in their brain, they just don't know what's right or wrong. The emotions are failing to give them the right inspiration for doing the right thing. Now that's possible, but here's an alternative view. On the view that I have, this moral grammar is doing its calculations independently of our emotional processes. It just looks at the world, it makes some calculation about the agent's intentions, the degree to which they have certain beliefs, and the consequences of their action. And it spits out a judgment. No, that's not permissible. Then that judgment can trigger an emotion, which may then affect our actions, but not necessarily our judgments. So here's the alternative explanation for psychopaths. They know what's right or wrong, but when it comes to doing things, there's no emotion to break their actual actions. So the distinction here, which is crucial, which science can now begin to investigate, is the difference between what we know as opposed to what we do. And emotions may play the more important role in guiding what we do as opposed to what we know. I see, but in either case, isn't it troublesome because now we have to uh, consider how much of a person's action is largely guided by their emotions or the biology, and therefore do we give these people a pass on their actions? So these are really interesting questions about sort of the degree to which the, the biology underpins us insofar as it interacts with the environment. And I think we're really only at the beginning stages of these kinds of insights. But I think here's one way to think about it. We, we now have a fairly good understanding of, let's say, the genetics and the biology of alcoholism. We know that certain people genetically, in some sense, are predisposed to suffering from alcoholism. But just because they've got that genetic predisposition does not mean they will inexplicably become alcoholic. That is, the genes don't determine in a kind of a one-to-one correspondence what the behavior will be. And I think the same is likely to be true for many of the neurological disorders that scientists have begun to investigate. So take something like psychopathy. This is a, a pathology that has been fairly well investigated. It seems clear that the developmental signature early in life that shows itself that makes certain people look like they're more prone to becoming psychopaths, for example, an early childhood of abusing pets seems to be something that's fairly common for people who become psychopaths. But here's where, you know, the environment's going to play a critical role. It could very well be that people who are susceptible to becoming psychopaths in the right kind of circumstances will not become so. And so I think this is where the difficult challenges become as we can learn more and more about the genetics underlying some of these disorders, more and more about how the brain develops over time, and more and more about how certain circumstances interact with both the genetic predisposition as well as the anatomy that unfolds over time, will we be able to understand the nature of that constraint or the nature of that predisposition to have certain kinds of pathologies? I'm curious, how much is known about the genes that are involved in the determination of moralistic behaviors? Um, in terms of genetics, I mean, virtually nothing is known for things like psychopathy. The, the one disorder that we've begun to look into more carefully, which is not specifically a moral disorder, are things like autism or Asperger's, which is the more high-functioning case, where here you have a disorder, a developmental disorder, which is something that typically occurs much more commonly in boys than girls. The ratio is something like 8 to 1 on some people's analyses. So given that it's much more common in boys than girls, we've already got the insight that it's genetically determined at some level. 
more and more being known about the genetics of autism. And the reason why autism is of interest to people interested in moral psychology is because the disorder for autism is one in which the individual doesn't have a good grasp, understanding of the minds of other people. In other words, we so commonly traffic in a world in which we make inferences about what others believe, desire, and intend without seeing anything about their behavior. We know a little bit about them, we make an inference about what they believe, what they desire, and so forth. For an autistic person or a person with Asperger's, that is the world which is simply locked off from their access. They just don't seem to grasp that their own desires and beliefs could be very, very different from somebody else's. So although no one has really pinned down the genetics of autism, certainly now that the Human Genome Project is fairly well in place, that we know that autism is a genetic disorder given the sex ratio biases, those are the kinds of cases which will begin to give us a better understanding of the genetics. Now the other case, which is also of interest, again, it's not specifically moral, but it links into our morality in a very strong way, are people with Huntington's chorea. So here we do know quite a lot about the genetics, and we know that it's a disorder which affects a certain protein, which therefore has consequences for the brain, and in particular, certain parts of the brain. Now, the most interesting thing about Huntington's is that the disorder leads to a selective deficit for one emotion, and that emotion is disgust. People with Huntington's neither experience disgust nor do they recognize disgust in others. And the reason why this becomes of interest to those of us interested in morality and the biology of morality is because disgust is often the emotion that gets tagged onto our evaluations of the other, the outgroup, as opposed to the in-group. So throughout history, in all the worst wars and crimes, the outgroup is tagged as being parasitic, vermin, diseased, all things that recruit our disgust emotion internally and therefore pin it on, therefore it's okay to do something because they're just simply disgusting and evil. So here we have a situation where we can begin to look and see how a selective emotional deficit interacts with moral judgments of others. And now we're just at the beginning of that kind of work. What is the, the evolutionary basis for uh, the development of our morality and are there examples of moral behaviors in animals? Yeah, so the, so the evolution in some sense has been, I think, I mean, certainly more discussed in the kinds of the mechanism questions of the brain-based psychology that we've been talking about so far. And here you can kind of go in two ways. It's important, I think, to keep two different kinds of questions alive when we think about the evolution of morality. On the one hand, our questions having to do with the adaptive significance or function of morality. And the second question is really about what's often referred to as the phylogeny or the evolutionary history of morality. And that is simply a comparative question. Which species have certain key elements of moral psychology that we have? Can we see the traces of our moral psychology in other animals in terms of building blocks? So most of the work that I discuss in the book really focuses on the latter, which is the building blocks that we can see. And I'll just give you one example. If we look at any kind of moral situation, one thing that seems clear is that any organism that is unable to distinguish between an act that is intended as opposed to an act that is accidental would never even enter into the moral arena because of a very simple reason. And that is, if I harm someone intentionally, certainly in terms of the law and certainly in terms of anybody who I would interact with, that's a very different thing than if I accidentally trip and hurt the person in exactly the same way. So my intent or the motivation underlying the action is crucial to my moral evaluation of the consequences. It's not 
simply about the consequences. So we've begun to find work uh, evidence in other animals, some non-human primates, some monkeys, and some apes, that through a variety of kinds of experiments, they seem to distinguish between intended versus accidental act where the consequences are the same. Now, that doesn't mean that they are moral agents. It simply means that they have at least some of the crucial building blocks for evaluating consequences, not merely based on whether it was a good or a bad, but what led to that consequence. So that's the first piece. We can look for the building blocks. The second piece is to ask the question, well, what were the selective pressures that led to the particular signature of our minds, in particular our moral minds, that gives us the capacity to engage in the various kinds of interactions we have that are morally relevant. That's a much harder one, especially because much of what we care about in the moral sphere, in terms of at least what we ought to do, is something that we don't really see any traces of in terms of other animals. Animals may well judge certain things, but whether they ever enter into a negotiation with themselves or others about what they ought to do is unanswered. But we can ask a different kind of question, which gets us a little bit closer to the adaptive question, which is when humans evolve certain kinds of moral capacities to judge others, to cooperate and do things that were seen as good as opposed to bad, what might have fueled that? And here we have some answers. Humans seem to have capacities to engage in large-scale cooperation with genetically unrelated individuals. Now that's an extraordinary advantage because now you can bind together with other individuals. Any look at the history of the world and all the wars, see time after time coalitions being formed between large-scale societies of genetically unrelated individuals. Now, one of the reasons why that may have gotten fueled is because unlike other animals, we found ourselves early in evolution in a situation in which groups were constituted not only on the basis of kinship, but based on other individuals who were genetically unrelated to us. That puts pressure on individuals to cooperate with those who they do not share genes in common with, and that would be an extraordinarily powerful advantage should that capacity arise. The second thing that I think facilitates our capacity for cooperation and doing things that are good for others, even at some cost to ourselves, is we can recognize cheaters, we can punish cheaters, as some theorists like Rob Boyd have pointed out, in order to get cooperation off the ground in a large group, you've got to have the capacity to recognize cheaters, punish them. Once that evolves, now you're really capable species in terms of stable cooperation across time. Uh, does this really argue against uh, the idea of a blank slate? And how many of our behaviors do you think are actually genetically predetermined? Well, I mean, I think, you know, there's sort of different notions of blank slate. I mean, the sort of the simple-minded view is that, you know, we're born with no constraints at all, and we are like pieces of clay, ready to be molded into any kind of shape or form. I mean, it's got to be wrong, because if that were true, then any kind of outcome would be possible. There's got to be constraints on what we can do that, for example, are different from other species. You know, and the simplest way of thinking about it is, here I have a dog growing up in my, you know, environment, and I have a daughter growing up in my environment, well, the, the daughter learns how to speak English, and the dog does not. So something about being human must put us on a path that allows us to acquire certain kinds of knowledge, but not others. Okay, so let, let, let's, let's take that as a reasonable starting point. Now the question is, what else? Um, I think in the same way as the notion of language grammar is one that is not specific to the content of what we do in the moral sphere or in terms of what we actually say in the linguistic sphere. 
They are a set of kind of general rules for language, morality, and many other domains. There'll be abstract kinds of rules that will enable us to acquire a set of possible systems, but not others. So, for example, in language, which is, of course, the system we know the best, the universal grammar is a theory about the toolkit for acquiring natural language. But it doesn't specify whether it's going to be Chinese or English or Spanish or whatever else we want to think about in terms of natural languages. It simply says, here are some tools for building languages alike. So my guess is the same thing is going to turn out to be true in the moral sphere. There'll be a set of very abstract general rules for building certain kinds of moral systems. Once you've acquired your native moral system, so for example, like us in the United States or in Canada or England, then it will be much harder to acquire a second moral system after a certain period of development in the same way that once you've acquired your native language, learning a second language becomes extremely difficult and a very different process of acquisition than the first system. Well, it's certainly very fascinating, but it uh, looks like we are slightly out of time. And Dr. Hauser, I do want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Brooklyn Rock Science Show. Thank you. And you were just listening to Professor Mark Hauser discussing moral minds. This is the Berkeley Grox Science Show you're listening to. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. Grokatron 5000. That's right, it's our supercomputer formerly known as the TRS-80, and today the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic moral or amoral. So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know, are they moral or amoral? Dr. Hauser, are you ready to play a game, the Grokatron 5000? Yep. All right, so person number one is Bill Gates. Moral. Uh, I think the fact that he has put all his money now into things like uh, various kinds of diseases and is really using his entrepreneurship to really promote science and research is extremely a good thing to do. Indeed, indeed. Uh, number two, Mel Gibson. <laughs> I mean, certainly immoral in terms of his claims towards uh, the outgroups and so forth, but I mean, you know, what he does in his personal life, I really don't know. <laughs> okay. Uh, number three, uh, the great economist Adam Smith. Moral. So thinking about kind of how our psychology expects, Adam Smith was one of the first people to actually think about sort of the, the moral grammar, so to speak, and thinking about kind of how fairness might come about by thinking about economics. Okay, number four, Paris Hilton. <laughs> Selfish amoral. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and number five, George Bush. Amoral, not really concerned with our own well-being rather than his own. <laughs> so in Massachusetts. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, uh, Professor Hauser, I do want to thank you for sticking around and playing the game, The Grokatron 5000, and talking about your book, The Moral Minds. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you very much. Bye. Dude, whoa. I've been trying to, like, go with the flow this whole episode, man, but it's been so turbulent, dude. That's what happens when you got that non-limiter flow, man. You got the whirls and the swirls and the whirls causing turbulence, man, on that non-limiter flow. Smooth ride, buddy. 
Okay, thank you, uh, Surfer Dude. And here's the Tokyo Kid with this week's question of the week. What is、uh, Surf Stance P? That's right,、uh, P, like、uh, PQR. If you know or think you know what the substance P is, email us at groks at hotmail.com. Won't win anything, but it'll be all gain. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grogs. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grogs, you can email us at grogs at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grogs, I'm Frank Lee. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grogs.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music. <laughs>